Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you wonder what finish to use on different projects? Do you have trouble setting up a plane for a full width shaving? Are you looking for 100% natural finishing products? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 51 of the show for June 19th, 2019. Before I start today's show, as always, I want to take a second to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Listener support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure to head on over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for the next patron Q&A video. And speaking of the patron Q&A videos, you probably noticed um, this month, or for the, for the month of May, actually the May Q&A video just, just came out uh, recently this week, but you, uh, many of you might have noticed that it's, it's actually a, a re-release of a previous um, patron-only video podcast that I did um, sometime last year. Uh, and the reason for that is because I just I don't really have a shop. I haven't had one for the last few weeks because it's being used for storage of a lot of the stuff needed to complete the cabin uh, sinks and uh, toilets and all kinds of stuff all kinds of supplies to finish up the uh, the cabin uh, is being stored in the basement in the, the area that uh, is currently my shop so uh, what I've been doing recently actually is trying to get the new shop space finished the in the garage so uh, that's pretty much where I have spent all of my time and why this is the uh, the May patron Q&A video is actually um, a re-release of an older one but um, the June Q&A video should be a new one and hopefully I will be in the new shop for that video so let's get into this week's questions and the first one comes from Damien uh, and he's got a question on cabinet backs hey Bob Damien here from Hudson Valley New York episode 48 brought a question to my mind and I just thought maybe I'd throw it out there for you when you make the backs of cabinets, do you always do it a certain way? For instance, do you always use an overlay technique for the back panel, or do you sometimes inset them? Um, and when you do either or both, how do you do it? All right, just uh, thought I'd give you a point of discussion, something I'd be interested in hearing your take on. Thanks again for everything you do, and stay sharp. So when I do cabinet backs, it kind of depends on the material that I'm using and, and the, what I'm building the cabinet for, um, I don't over. Uh, when you say overlay, I'm, I'm assuming you mean overlay in terms of the the back overlaying the um, the case sides itself. So, in, in other words, um, if I were to like just plane a, a rabbit maybe in the in the case sides um, and nail the nail the back of the cabinet um, in that rabbit so that it just gets essentially nailed onto the back. Um, I would say that's the way I do the majority of my case backs regardless of whether I'm doing um, plywood or solid wood. When I do plywood obviously you know it, it's usually for something more utilitarian. Um, kitchen cabinets uh, sometimes I'll do plywood backs. There's, there's not a whole lot of use or reason to do um, solid wood in the back of a kitchen cabinet it's just kind of a waste of solid wood so I usually use plywood there um, and in those cases I'll, I'll make a rabbit in the case sides um, and set the cabinet back in that um, there are there have been a few times when I have not done um, a, a full I, you know I guess what you refer to as an overlay cabinet back where you know you just plane a shallow rabbit and stick the back in there and then and nail it in um, and one of the examples I can give you is when I did my Walnut Entertainment Center years ago. Um, when I did that particular case piece, what I really wanted to do 
was recess the cabinet backs um, or inset them as you say um, and I wanted to do that by a few inches and the reason that I wanted to do that is because you know typically with with an entertainment center you know where you've got your TV and all your different console units you know whether it's a, a blu-ray player or you know video game consoles whatever all of those things have power packs and plugs and all kinds of stuff that usually gets you know just kind of thrown behind the um, the case behind the unit and uh, you have to leave room behind the case in order to plug all that stuff in you can't push the case right up against the wall well when I built that entertainment center my goal was to be able to push it back as far against the wall as I could so that you wouldn't see all those wires and all that stuff back there when you were walking past the side of the case so what I did is I recessed the backs of that case I guess maybe th you know two or three inches so that the back of the case the the case back itself isn't actually flush or right you know you know only a quarter or half inch in from the back of the case piece the cabinet back itself is pushed in about two inches so that when you have all those power packs and you have all the um, things that are plugged into the wall behind the cabinet you could still push the case all the way up against the wall and it hides all those cords it hides all that stuff so that's an instance where um, I have recessed you know or inset the back of the case by you know several inches um, but for most furniture pieces I usually don't do that it's um, it, it's really a waste of space I find you know to do to, to bother to inset the back um, so usually it's just you know trying to maximize the amount of space inside the case and the easiest way to do that is to keep the case back you know flush to the back of the of the um, case sides or um, or to inset it very little you know plain you know if I'm if I'm doing say a um, like a half inch tongue and groove back on a cabinet um, I may plane that rabbit five eighths of an inch um, you know maybe even less than that maybe nine sixteenths of an inch that way the the tongue and groove backboards would fit in that rabbit uh, but I'm maximizing the amount of space inside the case so unless I have some reason that I need to use that space behind the cabinet like I mentioned with the entertainment center for the most part I don't really see a need to inset the cabinet back uh, any more than necessary for kitchen wall cabinets um, that is a situation and this one it just popped into my head um, that is a situation where I will inset the cabinet backs because what I typically like to do when I build a wall cabinet is I will put the back on and then I might put a French cleat on the back of that cabinet or or just a, a thicker solid cleat that I can use to screw through to give me a little bit more meat uh, in the cabinet itself for uh, for hanging that cabinet and usually I want to put that French cleat or that that hanging cleat you know I, I don't want that just attached to the back of the cabinet because that pushes the cabinet away from the wall and you get a space so I want that French cleat to be flush with the back of the case sides so in order to do that you know if I've got a, a half inch back cabinet back and then I've got another half inch to three quarters of an inch for a French cleat you know if I've got a three quarter inch French cleat and a half inch cabinet back I've got to push that cabinet back in an extra three quarters of an inch so I'll make that rabbit um, for that cabinet back uh, you know a whole inch and a quarter instead of you know just a half inch that way I can set the case back in that rabbit um, and then put the French cleat in there as well and then when I hang that cabinet on the wall on the French cleat the uh, the the cabinet sides will be pulled tight against the wall and they'll be hanging there on that on that French cleat so uh, that's another situation where I might inset the cabinet back some uh, if I need to hang it on a wall and I want some extra meat there but for the most part I'm usually not in setting my cabinet backs all that much our next question comes from Jay Jay says several months ago you started a discussion about different types of wood finishes which was a great overview of the possible finishes one might use could you narrow the discussion to discuss which finish you would use with different types of projects for example a dining table top a side table a cabinet etc also how would you approach applying the finishes I'm interested in the finishes you use most 
So let's, I'm going to actually start by talking about how I would apply the finishes because um, I don't have too many options for applying a finish. I can either brush a finish on or I can wipe it on. Those are the only two methods I use for applying finish because I don't have spray equipment. Uh, I have no desire to get spray equipment at this time because for the most part, um, spray equipment is usually used with water-based finishes. Um, and I really don't use any water-based finishes in my work. So, um, you know, you can also spray shellac, you can spray lacquer. Um, you really don't want to spray oil-based finishes, but shellac and lacquer are pretty common to, to spray as well. Um, I don't really use lacquer, so again, I don't really need a sprayer for that. Um, and for shellac, you know, it just, to me, it's really not worth the effort. There's so many easier ways to apply shellac um, that and it's not worth it for me to put the expense into buying spray equipment um, or the, the pain in the butt that it is to clean, uh, disassemble and clean those guns after using something like shellac. So, um, so I don't bother with, with spray equipment. So I'm either going to brush a finish on or I'm going to wipe it on with a rag. Uh, and that's about the only methods that I use for applying finishes. In terms of the types of finishes I, that I use, that's also pretty limited. Um, I, I don't use a big variety of finishes. Uh, I'm not one that feels like I need to try every new finish that comes on the market. Um, you know, I, I keep my finishing to things that I've used, that I've learned to use, that I'm comfortable with, um, and that are good enough for the application that I'm using them for. Um, I have no interest in, you know, catalyzed finishes or two-part finishes, or you know, mo usually not even polyurethane. Uh, I will use polyurethane from time to time, um, but in most cases, I don't even like to use that because I'm more interested in using finishes that are easily repairable or renewed or refreshed than finishes that are quote-unquote bomb-proof. Um, so I don't tend to use too many, um, you know, too many finishes that you're going to find. Um, you know, you could find most of the stuff that I use in, in a regular hardware store even. You usually don't have to go to any specialty finishing place or woodworking place to, to get the finishes that I typically use. So let's get a little bit more specific. Um, what are the typical finishes that I use? Well, when it comes to paint, and, and I do use quite a bit of paint, I use milk paint pretty much ex uh, exclusively for my woodworking. I've tried latex paint. I don't like it on furniture or, or woodworking projects. Um, so I, I don't ever use it because it's just, it, it's really not meant for woodworking. It's meant for putting on your walls, on, on your drywall. Uh, it's pretty useless for anything else but that. So I don't use latex paint. Uh, I don't use spray paint, which is essentially just lacquer, tinted lacquer. Um, what I do use ex pretty much exclusively is milk paint and the only two brands that I usually use are Old Fashioned Milk Paint Company, which is the one that I prefer to use most of the time, um, or the Real Milk Paint Company. Um, I have used the General Finishes, and just to be clear, General Finishes Milk Paint is not milk paint. It's just an acrylic paint, um, which again is similar to you know your household latex. So again, it's not really a, a paint that I prefer to, to use for my woodworking. Um, I like the, the true... Um, True Milk Paints, the Old Fashioned Milk Paint Company, and Real Milk Paint. And that's pretty much what I use to do all of my painted work. When it comes to clear finishes, um, I'm usually looking at two different options. Some type of shellac or some type of oil-based varnish. My favorite oil-based varnish right now is um, Minwax Antique Oil. It is essentially a wiping varnish, um, probably very similar to wipe-on polyurethane, whether it's you know whatever brand you want to pick. Um, but it's not a it's not a urethane varnish; it's an alkyd resin varnish. Ultimately, there's not a whole lot of difference. Alkyd resin varnishes just tend to dry harder than urethane varnishes. So, a urethane varnish like Minwax polyurethane or wipe-on poly. Um, is going to dry a little softer and it's going to, you know, because it, it, it the type of finish that it is, they're, they're trying to be um, a little bit more resistant to scratching 
And in order to be more resistant to scratching, they make the finish a little bit more flexible. It doesn't dry quite as hard, which means it's harder to actually rub it out because it doesn't abrade very well. Um, that can be good if that's what you're looking for, um, but in most cases, it's not what I'm looking for. So um, I don't tend to use polyurethane varnishes all that often, although I do use them from time to time. Um, but I do like the Minwax Antique Oil. It's a, as I said, it's a it's a wiping varnish. It's an alkyd resin varnish. It's essentially linseed oil, um, alkyd resin, and um, and solvent. Uh, most likely, you know, a mix of of mineral spirits and naphtha and you know whatever their proprietary mix of solvents is that they use. Um, and that's what I use when I need a a, a thin film finish when I want a varnish finish that's a little bit more durable. Um, I might use that on a, a dining table. Um, I use it on a lot of my tools that I'm going to be banging around a lot. Um, I used the antique oil when I built the panel gauge. Um, it, it's a good finish. You can wipe it on thin a couple of coats. It, it doesn't feel like a thick plasticky finish like a polyurethane can. Um, doesn't have to if you apply it right. Polyurethane finish can actually be quite nice. Um, but it doesn't feel, feel like an, an overly thick film finish like a lot of the um, unthin varnishes can. Uh, I'll also make my own wiping varnish, you know, if I feel uh, like I want to use poly because it's just, it's a lot cheaper to buy full thickness polyurethane and then add mineral spirits to it, um, you know, to, to make your own wiping varnish. So, um, that's another finish that I will use from time to time. And again, that's something that I might use on a, on a dining table top. Um, you know, something that I don't want to have to, um, mess with the finish too often. Um, you know, a dining table is going to take a lot of abuse. Um, and I feel like the Alcad resin varnish works quite well for that. Um, it's not as easy to repair as shellac because like any varnish, um, it doesn't redissolve once the once the varnish is cured. It doesn't redissolve in the solvent that that is used with it. So once poly cures or once the the alkyd resin varnish cures, you can wipe it down with mineral spirits and nothing is going to happen. It's just it you know it it doesn't strip the finish off. So to repair a varnish finish, uh, you typically will have to sand, um, you know, or remove that finish or braid that finish to some some amount and uh, to get another coat of, uh, of finish to stick on there. So it's a little bit more difficult to repair. Um, so I might use that on something that I don't intend to repair that often. Um, my other finish of choice uh, would be, my uh, top coat finish would be shellac. And again, depending on what I'm doing, I will either brush it or pat it on. I prefer to pat it when I can. I feel like I have more control over the surface when I pat it on versus when I brush. When I brush it, um, if you don't get it just the right thickness or thinness, you tend to get a little buildup on the edges. Um, so I, I prefer to pad shellac when I can. Um, but that's something you know that I would put on a side table. I might put it on bedroom furniture, uh, you know, like a, a chest of drawers or a bed or you know a side table, you know, an, um, a nightstand or something like that. Uh, I might use shellac. Um, I might also just use oil with, uh, you know, no, no resin in it or, or no, uh, no shellac top coat. I, you know, sometimes I'll just use a, a straight linseed oil finish. Uh, if I'm looking for something that really doesn't have too much sheen, um, adds a little protection, not a whole lot, um, but it just gives the, the wood a little bit of, of life and brings out the, you know, the, the figure and the grain in the wood. Um, without really putting any kind of film coat on it. So uh, there are times when I might just use a, an, a, an oil finish. And that might also be things that I would similarly put shellac on, um, like a, a side table or coffee table um, or a um, you know bedroom furniture, things like that. I wouldn't usually use shellac or, um, or oil on a dining room table because you're going to be putting wet things on there, you're going to be putting hot things on there. Um, and shellac, if you put hot hot things on without trivets or without coasters, um, you can get rings, you can um, start to melt the finish a little bit if you put something really hot on top of that. So uh, I tend not to use shellac for, for things like dining tables. 
Um, dining tables is where I'll, I'll stick to the varnish. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about natural finishes and, and oil finishes in a little bit. But, um, you know, linseed oil is one of my favorites. Uh, tried and true makes a good uh, boiled linseed oil that doesn't have any um, heavy metal dryers in it. Uh, raw linseed oil can even work. It just takes a little bit longer for it to cure than the boiled linseed oil or, or the linseed oil that you get in the hardware store that has the heavy metal dryers in it. So, uh, But those are typically the three finishes that I use, uh, or, or four I should say. Milk paint, linseed oil, shellac, or some type of oil-based varnish. Um, and the, the oil-based varnish, like I said, usually only comes out when I need something that I don't want to have to mess with the finish too often. Um, you know, like a dining table or a countertop or something like that. In all other cases, it's usually oil, shellac, or milk paint. And, uh, and that's about all that I really use. So our next question comes from William. He says, my question concerns achieving full width shavings. Despite my attempt at careful sharpening, the blade is not cutting full width. The blade cuts a half inch or less cut in the middle of the blade. When I hold a square against the blade and against the light, I sense that the blade is not even across, but has an ever so small unevenness, which is probably the source of the problem. Perhaps a little rise in the middle. This is seemingly to occur even after careful sharpening. What's a strategy for achieving a flat across blade 90 degrees to the side? Uh, I appreciate it would require filing, but uh, I'm wanting a good technique to ensure success. I'm not sure it would require filing. You might you might mean grinding. Um, so yeah, so if you want if you want a full on um, straight, no camber blade, uh, well, there's a couple things going on here. First, um, when my plane isn't taking a full width shaving, even my smoothing plane, which has very, very little bit of camber, the first thing I suspect is that the board isn't flat, um, and that's going to make a, a big difference. You know, if you just attacked your board with a, a jack plane or a triplane that has some camber in it, um, that smooth plane, because it's taking such a fine cut, is really only going to be taking material off the high spots. So you got to remember, if you've got a cambered jack plane or a cambered triplane or joiner plane those planes are going to leave a slightly scalloped surface. You may not be able to see it, but it's there nonetheless. So if you've got a smooth plane that's flat or nearly flat across and, and you know with little to no camber, you're only going to be taking the high spots off of that surface until you get rid of that scalloped surface with the, the smooth plane. So that's the first thing I think when, when I'm not getting a, a full width shaving. Um, after that, that's when I might look at the blade. Now, if you have, if your plane has a camber to it, intentional or not, you're not going to get a full width shaving. Um, but you can, depending on how much per blade projection you have. The less blade projection, the narrower that shaving is going to be. So it really depends upon the extent of the camber. It sounds like what you have is a is a camber, an unintentional camber in your blade, which can come from a couple of things. Um, I don't know if you're using a honing guide or not. I will, I will assume that you that you are, uh, just for argument's sake. Um, if you are using a honing guide, the first thing that I would make sure of is that you are putting even pressure as you're honing, um, especially on your coarser stones. If your pressure shifts to the outside edges of the blades at all, especially with like a side clamp honing guide, you know, the, the Eclipse clones, um, those rollers are very narrow and it's very easy to introduce some camber just by putting a little bit of extra pressure on the outside edges of those blades. Uh, uh, yeah, on the outside edge of the blade as you're using that honing guide. So you really need to make sure that you're keeping the pressure in the, in the center of the blade so that you're not putting any excess pressure on the outside edges. Um, and that can be difficult to do sometimes, um, especially if you've got a, a relatively wide blade and you know maybe things aren't squaring up the way you want. The other thing is you're gonna wanna make sure your stones are flat. Um, if your stones aren't flat and they're, they're dished, what's gonna happen is the outside edges of your blade are going to get 
hone down uh, before the center of the blade does. Even if you take that blade to a grinder, grind it straight across, perfect 90 degrees to the edges. When you take that blade to the stones, if your stones aren't flat, regardless of what kind of stone you're using, if it's not flat, you're go if, if it's got a dish to it, which is very common uh, in, if you're using water stones, and even with oil stones, if you've been using them for a while, um, if your stones aren't flat, they're going to hone the outer outside edges of that blade, the outside corners of that blade, before the center gets honed. So you'll start honing and you, you won't feel the burr on the back of the blade in the center, and you'll hone until you feel that burr, but by the time you feel that burr in the center, the outside edges have already been worn down or honed down uh, quite a bit. So you end up unintentionally introducing a camber into that blade. So you're going to want to make sure if you want a blade, if you want to hone a blade straight across, you need to make sure that your stones are perfectly flat. If you're using water stones, um, they can become dished quite easily, especially if you have sharpened chisels before you've gone and before you go ahead and sharpen a wide blade, because the tendency is to sharpen that chisel in the center of the stone. Um, so the center tends to get worn down faster than the outside edges of the stone. Um, so it's very important to, especially if you've been sharpening chisels on your stones, to flatten your stones first. If you use oil stones, um, again, check them because they will go out of flat. They don't go out of flat as quickly as water stones, but they will go out of flat nonetheless. So you do need to check them from time to time and flatten them from time to time. And you can flatten oil stones uh, with a diamond plate, just like you might use to flatten your water stones. It just takes a little bit longer to flatten uh, oil stones than it does water stones. If you're using flat, nothing but flat diamond plates like the, the DMT uh, diamond plates, then they should be flat, but I would not hesitate to check them if you're having problems and make sure that they're flat before you your next session, uh, just to make sure that that's not the source of the problem either. But I would be willing to bet that it's, it's probably uneven pressure if you're using a honing guide. It's most likely uneven pressure uh, and you're not focusing enough of the pressure when you're honing in the center of the blade. Um, and, and that's what I would suggest you try to focus on is making sure that the majority of the pressure of, from your honing is focused around the center of the blade. If you have a grinder, um, go ahead and regrind that bevel nice and, and straight and flat across. Um, take your time and, you know, it, it just takes a little bit of, of practice with the grinder to, in order to be able to do that. If you don't have a grinder, um, you can do you can do it with a honing guide and a uh, and a diamond stone or or a very coarse stone or or sandpaper uh, on a on a floor tile or or granite slab or or glass or whatever you have, but just make sure that substrate is flat. Um, if you're using sandpaper, you know which is um, um, one thing I should mention. Um, Sandpaper, you want to make sure that your, your, whatever you're affixing your sandpaper to, again, is flat. Don't trust that it should be flat. Check it with a good, reliable straight edge or the edge of a square or whatever and make sure that it is flat. Um, and change the paper often. What often happens with sandpaper is the edges of the paper, especially if they're not um, adhered well to the substrate, they will curl up ahead of the blade. Sometimes you can't even see it happen, but it happens nonetheless, and it can cause some rounding of the blade. Um, well, oftentimes what can happen is the um, the outside edges as you're working, um, the, the paper in the center tends to dull quicker than the paper at the outside edges. So what happens is as you're honing, the paper at the outside tends to cut the outside edges of the blade faster, and again, when that happens, because the, the paper in the center of the blade is duller and not cutting quite as quickly, you introduce an inadvertent camber. So um, I don't care for sandpaper sharpening because of that, because the paper wears out too quickly. And especially in the center of the blade, it tends out to wear, it tends to wear faster than the outside edges. Uh, and you end up with that camber that you don't want um, if you, if in fact you don't want the camber. So. Um, if you're if you're working with sandpaper, again, make sure your substrate's flat. Make sure you change the paper often. 
um, so that it's not dulling in the center and the uh, and wearing down the outside of your edges prematurely. So then our last question for this week comes from Paige. Uh, and she has a question about natural finishes. She says, my, gen my, my generation, the millennials, is really into natural products. So I'd like to have most, if not all my products that I have lined up ready to be finished to be done with natural products. I've thought about shellac, but for the projects that will be around alcohol, shellac is basically out of the picture. But I was wondering if I, wondering if I could put wax over it and that would help, or if I have to try something else. If I have to try something else, what would you suggest that's a natural sealer? Some of my projects include a tabletop and a beer caddy. Have you ever heard of Safe Coat as a sealer? And also, would you know of any natural stains? Okay, so I'm going to, Paige, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle your question kind of out of order. Um, Safe Coat, I have not used, I have not heard of, so I'm not really going to offer any opinion on that because I've never used it uh, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Um, Natural stains. Um, I think what you're going to find is that pretty much all stains are natural. What is not necessarily so natural is the carrier of those pigments. So stains are really nothing more than pigments. Whether it's a stain or whether it's a dye, um, all it is, is is a pigment. And the difference between a stain and a dye is the level to the fineness of those pigments. In a stain, the pigment particles are much larger and they are put into a suspension, uh, meaning they, a suspension is kind of like, uh, you know, if you were to take sand, put it in some water and shake it up, that sand will kind of float around for a little bit, especially the smaller particles, and you'll have this cloudy water. But eventually, if you put that aside, those sand particles will all kind of settle to the bottom because they don't actually dissolve in the water. They just suspend in the water. That's what your typical pigment stain is. The particles don't, don't really dissolve in the carrier or the solvent. Um, they, they suspend in it. The majority of the particles suspend. So in a typical stain, what you have is a solvent, a binder, and a pigment. Your pigment is what gives you the color. And just about all pigments are natural, whether they're, um, you know, red iron oxide kind of gives you like a reddish rusty color. Um, you know, th there are a lot of different pigments and they're all you know, yellow ochre. There's all these different pigments and you can actually make your own stains by just buying the pigments. If you go to a company like Kremer Pigments, um, you, can, you can buy powdered pigments and make your own stain. What you need to make a stain is essentially um, a solvent, a binder, and the pigment. So when you have, once you have the powdered pigments, the other two things that you need are a solvent and a binder. The solvent is essentially, um, you know, what's going to thin out the binder, and the binder is what's going to dry on the surface and seal that that pigment in. Um, the stains, like like a Minwax oil-based stain, your binder is usually an, a clear oil-based varnish um, of some sort or oil. Um, the solvent is usually something like mineral spirits or naphtha or a mixture of, of petroleum-based solvents. And the pigment is just that. It's a, it's a powdered pigment that's then suspended in those solvents. So what you really need to do is replace those, those unnatural solvents that you're not looking for with something a little more natural. Um, dyes are not suspensions, they are actually solutions. So in a dye, the pigment is ground much finer and it actually dissolves in the carrier. And that carrier can be water, it, most typically it's either water or alcohol. So if you look at dyes instead of stains, um, I think that's going to get you to where you wanna be because if you look at um, uh, powdered dyes, uh, I forget the the brand that Tools for Working Wood carries, but it's one that I, I've used uh, several times before. It's a water-soluble powdered dye. So you just take however much of that powdered pigment that you want, you dissolve it in water, and you wipe it on or brush it on, um, and, when, and, it, and it dyes the wood the color that, that the dye is. 
Um, it doesn't really get much more natural than that. So in terms of coloring the wood, if that's what you're looking to do, I would suggest looking at powdered dyes. Um, Lockwood, I think that's the WD Lockwood, I think is the one that um, Tools for Working Wood carries. That's the one that I've used the most. Um, and you can just dissolve it in water. You can also dissolve some dyes in alcohol. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing. You can use, you know, Everclear from the liquor store, which is essentially pure ethanol. Um, and you can use that uh, as your carrier for your dye. So if you're looking for, you know, that natural type of stain, uh, that would be my suggestion. Look at something like WD Lockwood dyes, um, and then you can you can either dissolve dissolve them in uh, in alcohol or in um, yeah or or in water. Um, and use that as your dye. The in, in terms of natural finishes, you have a couple choices. The the thing that I would suggest most to you would be to, to look at different finishes, but look for a document that every chemical manufacturer, every finish manufacturer has to provide for everything that they sell. The document is called an MSDS or Material Safety Data Sheet. And that document has to list any hazardous uh, components of that, uh, of that particular product. Um, and you can find out a lot of things by looking through the MSDS. Now, the rules around MSDSs has, have changed in the last few years. It used to be that all the components had to be listed um, and then they had to talk about the hazards. Now, all the components don't necessarily have to be listed. They just have to list the, the known hazardous components of um, of the, the, the finish or, or what it is that you're looking at. But I would recommend that you, you take a look at that. If you search for any finish, you know, let's say you search for, um, you know, Minwax, Polyurethane, MSDS, you'll find a PDF online, um, that will be the MSDS and it'll tell you all the, you know, what's in there, the hazardous ingredients that are, that are in there. Um, and the, the hazards around that and how to treat those hazards. Um, it's very, I think they, they can be very informative. They are very scientific, but they can also be very informative. Um, for example, these days, a lot of the, the finishes that are becoming popular are the, you know, the quote unquote hard wax oils because they are, you know, all natural and they are no VOCs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I pulled the MSDS on one popular hard wax oil. And even though some of the oils or the waxes or whatever that they use might be natural waxes and natural oils, um, they do contain solvents. They do still contain solvents. And a lot of these products will claim, you know, no VOCs. And all VOC is, it's, it's a volatile organic compound or volatile organic component. Um, and that just means it's something, it's a, it's an organic solvent that has a tendency, it has a low evaporation temperature. So at room temperature, that solvent evaporates rap, you know, fairly rapidly. Um, and there are a lot of different solvents that are considered VOCs. Common alcohol, ethanol, which, you know, we use for shellac is considered a VOC. It's a volatile organic compound. Um, but it's a natural solvent and it's one that is, you know, it's very safe. There are really no um, major hazards to pure ethanol unless you drink too much of it. Um, so, you know, definitely look at the MSDS. If you look at a lot of, you know, like the hard wax oils, um, the one that I happen to look up, yes, it has no VOCs. It has no volatile organic compounds, but in order to get around that and be able to say there's no VOCs, what they do is they use a solvent, a heavy, essentially a molecularly heavier solvent. So this particular one uses um, a, a modified naphtha. Naphtha by itself is a, a VOC, but what they do is they modify it to make the molecule itself heavier so that it doesn't evaporate as readily. Um, but it's still a petroleum-based solvent that they're using in this particular product that supposedly is, you know, safer and natural. So I would say definitely look at the MSDS. Um, there are a few products that I can say you can pull the MSDS and they will pretty much have no harmful or, or solv solvents or anything of that nature. My Some of my favorites are the tried and true products, and there's three different ones. There is the original finish, 
what they call a Danish oil. And uh, the third one is a, a varnish oil. The original uh, finish is a mixture of linseed oil and beeswax. Um, and that's it. They pull it, they use a, a natural polymerization product process for their linseed oil, essentially a traditional boiled linseed oil. They don't add heavy metal dryers um, or any of those things to, um, to speed the drying process. It's a traditional boiled linseed oil. So they raise the temperature of the oil to essentially just before its flash point, before its boiling point. Um, and that partially polymerizes the oil, makes it dry faster. So their original, tried and true original finish is a mixture of their boiled linseed oil and beeswax. Their Danish oil, what they call Danish oil, is nothing more than a boiled linseed oil, a traditional boiled linseed oil. Again, heated, not heavy metal uh, metallic dryers added. And then their varnish oil um, is, again, it's a mixture of their oil, their boiled linseed oil, with uh, a resin and i don't remember off the top of my head which what the resin is but essentially it's a resin that they can um, cook in with the hot linseed oil so those are three products that you could take a look at they are going to dry a little bit more slowly than a hardware store of boil linseed oil that has the japan dryers added but again they are all natural products so that's something that you can look at they do not have any solvents in them whatsoever so you can take a look at those um, some other options that you have for completely all natural finishes, um, shellac, as you mentioned, is an all natural finish. Um, it's not as it's not as as um, non durable as you might think. You can use shellac on a surface that is going to see alcohol. Um, most alcoholic beverages would need to sit on a shellac surface for an extended period of time to start damaging the finish. If you spill a drink on something that has been um, coated with shellac, it is not going to immediately strip all the finish off. It doesn't dissolve that quickly. If you wipe it up, you should be fine. So a beer caddy finished with shellac is going to be just fine because beer has such a low alcohol content, um, it's really not going to damage the finish at all. Um, similarly, a tabletop, you know, if you're putting beer on it, um, if you're putting wine on it, those are not beverages with a high enough alcohol content that it's really going to do anything to that shellac finish. So you should be just fine. And if you use a waxed shellac instead of a de-waxed shellac, uh, you will actually end up with a more durable shellac finish than a de-waxed shellac. So um, it's not quite as, doesn't dry quite as hard as a de-waxed shellac, but the wax in the finish does actually make it a little bit more durable. So if you use a, a regular shellac, like a Zinsser bullseye shellac, that has not been de-waxed, it's actually a more durable finish than a de-waxed shellac. Um, or you can add some, you know, a wax top coat to a shellac and that will, will slow the penetration of whatever it is um, to that shellac surface. So shellac's a little bit more durable than people, than people give it credit. Um, some other options, you could just go with a raw linseed oil. Um, you can buy it, again, I mentioned Kremer pigments before, um, you can buy it from a lot of art supply stores because uh, people who make their own oil paints will often use raw linseed oil to mix their pigments, and that's how they make their oil paints. So uh, you can look for raw linseed oil. You can often find raw linseed oil in a health food store labeled as flaxseed oil or flax oil. Same thing. That's a raw linseed oil. Um, you can use walnut oil, which is another drying oil you know, made from, from pressed from walnuts and you can find that in a grocery store and a health food store. So, so there are some options for natural finishes. Most of them are not going to be as durable as a polyurethane, as a lacquer. Um, so as long as you have the right expectations, you understand that and you, you realize that you may have to touch up that finish once in a while. You may have to refresh that finish. Um, then I think you'll be satisfied with those finishes. If you're expecting these natural oils and these natural finishes to be as bomb proof as something like a conversion varnish, then I think you're going to be disappointed. So I think as long as you have the right expectations, then these natural finishes are wonderful products um, and they are easily repairable. And that's a, the one of one of the things I love most about them is that they are, they are easily repairable. If the finish gets damaged, if a, an oil finish gets damaged, you can usually just 
add a little bit more oil and it, and you're pretty much done. Um, if a shellac finish gets damaged, you can wipe it down with some alcohol, add another coat or two of shellac and you're good to go. So um, give them a try, you know, look, look into those products. Um, and again, as long as you have the right expectations, I think you'll be happy with them. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfindwoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfindwoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is a start to finish overview of completing a project. And it was a topic suggested by Yoni. So let's listen to Yoni's voicemail. Hello, Bob. People typically ask for a deep dive into a particular subject in woodworking. I was wondering if instead you could give the 50,000 foot view of a project. I mean, what is the anatomy of a complete project from start at the conception stage through the lumber yard, measurements, cutting, joining, gluing, and so on, and finally through to the finish, pun intended. Thank you for all you do. You often answer woodworking questions I didn't even know I should have been asking. Stay sharp. So the 50,000 foot view of a project. Uh, we'll see if I can get through this without getting too long winded. But, um, you know, for me, a project starts, like you said, with there, there's a, a conception phase for the project. Um, and it really starts in, in my case uh, with a question, right? Am I making this project because I need something? You know, am, do I need this project for a specific purpose, um, or is this just something that I want to build? So, and and that can really, you know, sway how the how the project goes, or or at least maybe how it's designed, um, because before you get into the design phase, I you know you really kind of have to ask yourself the. What is the function of the piece? What is the need of the piece? And that can determine a lot of things for you. Um, you know, if you're making uh, something, if you're making a countertop because you're remodeling a kitchen and you need countertops, well, that is going to dictate a lot of things, right? Your your dimensions are pretty much already set for you because countertops need to be 25 inches. You know, if you're if you're not making the cabinets yourself. And you're, you know, maybe you're buying cabinets or, or maybe you are making the cabinets, but for the most part, all of your, your kitchen appliances, your kitchen sinks, these things are all designed around cabinets that are 24 inches deep and countertops that are 25 inches deep. So you're kind of limited in your dimensions when you're, you're working on a project like that. Um, or maybe, you know, you're making a dining room table and your dining room is a certain size. So you're, you're limited by the space that the piece can go into. Um, so, you know, that kind of directs some of your design choices, whether it's the, you know, the, the size of the table or um, the finish that you're going to put on the table because of where it's going to be used, you know, kitchen countertops, kind of the same thing. You know, you might you let that guide your finishing choices because it's a kitchen countertop and, you know, you really want it to be durable, so you're going to use some bomb-proof epoxy-type finish. Or the other end of the spectrum, you're not so worried about it being bomb-proof and durable. You want it to be 100% food-safe because you're going to be prepping on that countertop. So you're going to use something like a, a natural linseed oil or walnut oil that you know might need to be refreshed a little more often, but it's 100% food-safe. So you kind of have to ask yourself some of those questions in, at the onset of a project. Now, on the other hand, it may be you're just making the project because it's something you want to make. You, know, you don't need it. You don't even maybe know what you're going to do with it when you're done. Um, but you just want to make this thing. And that gives you a lot more um, design choices and, and freedom in terms of your design uh, because you're, you're a lot less limited in most of those cases. So, um, so that's kind of where I start. You know, what, what is this project going to be? What do I need it for? You know, is it, am I building this because I have a specific need or is this just something that I really want to make and I don't really have a need for it and I have, you know, no design restrictions. I can just, you know, go crazy. Um, from there, 
it goes on to you know the the, the basic design and i usually design uh, i might usually you know, i might sketch it up on paper first just to get a, an idea uh run it by my wife see what she thinks you know especially if it's something that she has to have some input on um but a lot of times i do my my design in sketchup and uh, and i'll go from there and i, and I kind of start with overall dimensions um usually so you know if it, if it's um something with us that's going to live in a specific place i might restrict those dimensions to you know what where it's going to live where that project is going to live um and then i base the base it on proportions i use a lot of whole number proportions and um, George Walker really turned me on to that and, and the, the things that he writes in his videos and his seminars that he does um, really got me into using whole number proportions and I really like them because they they're they're so easy to work with um, and it's very quick and easy to, to change proportions and, and look at different things to see what you like so I'll design a lot of my pieces using whole number proportions to get the look that I'm after um, before I fill in that that cube or that rectangular prism, um, you know, so that I kind of have the overall proportions and then I can kind of fill that in with, with the design elements of the piece. Once I have the, the design pretty much figured out, that's when I make the trip to the lumber yard. A lot of people will stock up on lumber um, and figure, well, they'll find the first, find the perfect project for it. I tend not to work that way. I don't like to stock up on lumber because I don't like to be limited to the lumber that I have on hand when it comes time to build a project. I would rather choose my lumber for the project rather than the other way around. I don't want to choose my project for the lumber that I have. I want to choose the lumber for the project that I want to build. So for example, if I'm making a dining table, um, I don't really want to glue up my tabletop out of a bunch of four to six inch wide boards. Uh, I don't like the aesthetic of that. So, you know, just because, you know, if I had bought a whole bunch of, of cherry at some point and uh, I had a whole bunch of four to six inch wide boards and I needed to make a dining table, um, I might be tempted to just, you know, use what I have and, and glue it all up out of these four to six inch wide boards. To me, that just wouldn't look very good. So I designed this dining table. I'm going to go to the lumber yard and I'm going to look for boards for specific purposes. And when I'm looking for a tabletop, I'm looking for wide boards because in to my eye, a tabletop glued up out of, you know, three, maybe four wide boards looks, looks much better than a tabletop glued up out of 10 or 12 narrow boards. So I'm going to go to the lumber yard and I'm going to choose my lumber for specific parts of that project. Um, and I, I'm always going to have some alternatives in mind because obviously, you know, I might go to the lumber yard looking for, uh, you know, a bunch of 15 inch wide cherry boards. And, and, you know, there's a good chance, except for some, some specialty lumber yards that I'm not just not going to find 15 inch wide boards. So I may have some alternative designs and some alternative ideas in mind in case I can't find the lumber that I want. But I always kind of go with, with this idea that I want to choose boards for specific parts of a project. Um, so that's one thing that, that I'll do when I go to the lumberyard. And, and it's going to be based on the, the grain of the board. It's going to be based on the figure in the board. Um, I'm not going to use figured wood for table legs, for example. Um, I don't like the way that it looks. You know, I, I've seen people who have built shaker tables and, and different things like that um, out of curly, super curly, um, like tiger stripe maple. Um, and I love tiger maple. I, I think it's a beautiful looking wood. But when you make the table legs and the table aprons and the table top and the drawer front, and you make every single part of that project out of super highly figured tiger maple, it just, to me, looks too busy. It's overwhelming. So instead, what I might do is get really nice straight grain plain stuff for the legs. So I get these really nice straight straight grain legs. Um, and I might probably do the same thing for the aprons. And if there's a drawer, maybe I'll make the drawer front in the nice figured figured stuff. And of course, the table top itself, I'll make that out of, you know, out of something with, with more figure. Um, and to my eye, 
that looks better than using figured lumber in every part of the project. So um, these are all things that I think about as I'm going to the lumber yard and I'm, and I'm looking at boards where, you know, what part do I need? What parts do I need boards for? And what is my ideal board for that particular part of the project? And if I can't find that, then I might have some secondary or tertiary ideas around what I could use. Um, but I'm always looking for, you know, what would be my ideal board. Now, once I get that lumber back to my shop and it's sat for, you know, a few days to a few weeks to equilibrate to the space before I start working with it. When I'm ready to start working on the project, get my, my box of Crayola chalk, um, and I'm going to go over those boards and chalk them all where I'm going to get my different parts from. A lot of this may have already been done at the lumber yard because I'm buy again, I'm buying those boards for specific purposes. So as I think about, okay, this board is going to be for this part of the project, I might write that on the board with chalk right at the lumber yard. Um, if I've got another board and I say, well, I can get a couple of aprons out of this and I can get, you know, a drawer front out of this from, from this part of the board, I might draw some lines on that board again, right at the lumber yard and say, okay, this part of the board is going to be for an apron. This part of the board is going to be for an apron. Uh, this other part of the board over here looks like it's got some crotch figure in it. So I'm going to use that for the drawer front. And I might draw that out on the board right at the, at the lumber yard. If I haven't, I'll take that opportunity, um, after the lumber sat for a couple weeks in my shop to then go through and figure out where the different parts are coming from, from those boards that I bought. Then I can start my milling. And one thing that I don't do because of the way I work is I don't mill all my lumber at the same time. I will mill lumber just for the parts that I'm working on. So because I don't do a lot of machine work, um, for example, if I'm making a table, I will get the, the board that I'm going to use to make those table legs. And I will just work on the four table legs. I won't mill any lumber for any other part of that table. I'll cross cut, rip, plane what I need just for those table legs so I can get them oriented the way that I want. Once I have the table legs done and have the mortises cut in those table legs, then I'll move on and cut the stock for the aprons and plane the stock for the aprons and cut the joinery in the aprons. Because again, I'm hand planing a lot of stuff and I'm doing a lot of this work by hand um, and I don't see a lot of value in milling all my lumber in in at one time. I do have a thickness planer um, that I, I have acquired, you know, in the last year and a half, I guess. Um, and I will use that on occasion if I've got a lot of lumber to mill. But I still work, I guess you could say, as if I don't have a thickness planer. Because I, again, I don't mill and plane all my lumber at the same time. I mill it and plane it as I'm going to use it. Um, so, um, I'll, I'll mill my parts up as I as I need them and as I work through them. Um, everything is gets dry assembled. Um, you know there there won't be any glue up typically um, until all the parts are made. So even if I'm making something you know some kind of complex piece like you know let's say a dressing table or low boy, um, I'm usually not going to glue up the case of that low boy until I have all of the parts for that low boy made and dry fit. Not necessarily the drawers um, or the top, but all of the case parts, the legs, the sides, the back, um, and, and all the drawer dividers and, and parts of that web frame that, that fit in the front of the low boy. Um, I'm gonna have all those pieces made and dry fit. And a lot of times what I'll do is dry fit the pieces and the sub-assemblies as I go. So as I mentioned, maybe I'll do all the legs at one shot and I'll have those ready. I'll have the mortises, they'll be ready to go. Then I'll move on to making the aprons and I'll make the three aprons for two for the side, one for the back. And then I'll dry fit that assembly. So I'll take the four legs, I'll fit the sides and I'll fit the back and put that aside. And that's how the parts will stay. I don't disassemble it and sticker the parts or, or anything like that because they're going to stay flat and they're going to stay better fit to their mating pieces if you leave them fit to their mating pieces. So that's what I tend to do. Um, and I'll put that sub-assembly aside and then 
I'll work on, you know, the front part where the, all the drawer dividers and everything are going to be. And then I'll dry fit that and, and have that all fit together. And I'll make sure everything fits well and dry fits before I then disassemble it. Once I have all the pieces for that, for the main case made, then I'll disassemble it all and go ahead and add the glue and start putting everything back together. Then go ahead, you know, make the drawers. Um, and I'll usually do those again, one at a time, because I usually will not have time if I'm building a piece uh, again I'll use the low boy as an example that low boy might have four or five drawers in it I probably don't have time to make all four or five drawers in a single day so I'll mill up all the stock that I need for a single drawer and I'll make that drawer then I'm you know the next day if I'm going back to work on the piece again I will probably mill up the stock that I need for the second drawer. Uh, the only time I might mill up all the stock for all the drawers is if I knew I was going to have a couple days to work on them um, in a row and I could I could really dedicate a lot of time. Maybe I, it was a weekend and I was going to be able to spend you know, six to eight hours a day working on them. Then I might mill up everything at, at, at once. Um, but the way my schedule works, I usually don't have those long blocks of time. I might have two or three hours at a time. So I'll go to the shop, mill up what I need for a single drawer, and then cut the joinery and dry assemble that drawer and put it in the case, fit it to the case, uh, and, and make sure that everything's going to be good, um, and then leave it there. And then the next day, I can mill up and do the next drawer, or the next time I get in the shop, which may not be the next day. Um, then again, once all the drawers are done and fit, then that, that piece might be ready for finishing. Finish choices for me, I, I just talked about this quite a bit. Um, I really only use a few different types of finish and that's gonna be uh, a paint, oil, shellac, or varnish. Um, in the case of you know a low boy, um, it's most likely gonna be oil and then shellac over top of that once the, once the oil dries. Um, there may be some dye in there depending on the, the look that I'm going for. Um, I might dye it first and then oil it and then shellac it. So, you know, there, there, there are different things, might be different things going on there. Uh, just depends on the look that I'm going for. But, um, yeah, you know, it's the way that I work, um, I, I tend to, to look at small assemblies, small sub assemblies as separate projects. And that's just kind of, kind of the way that I do things, um, because I find that I don't always have long blocks of time to work on things. And there are plenty of times when I start a project and it gets put aside because something else comes up and I have to start a new project. So I might have two or three projects ongoing uh, at a time. And, uh, and I, you know, by not necessarily milling all of the lumber ahead of time, I don't have to worry about that lumber moving in the two months that I haven't been able to work on that project. Um, and then having to remill it, and now it's too thin. So, um, so that's just kind of kind of the way that I tend to do things because of the way my schedule typically works, uh, and the way that I find time um, in the shop. Um, and then finishing, you know, my finishing, I, like I mentioned, is usually going to be one of those four finishes, um, and I almost always, almost um, always finish with some kind of wax after whatever I put on, whether it's working with oil, uh, shellac, milk paint, or some combination of, of all of those different things. Um, I almost always prefer to do a, a steel wool, rub out the finish with steel wool and paste wax. So the last thing I almost always do to anything I make is a paste wax finish. Uh, it's just, it's the way that I learned uh, and it's just the way that I've always done things. I know a lot of people don't like paste wax. Um, I happen to like the way that a piece feels after it's waxed. Um, and I like to, uh, I like the way that, that it looks as well. Um, so I almost always will finish with some type of wax. So uh, Yoni, I hope that's what you were looking for. Uh, I, I hope I didn't ramble on too much about it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that that's that's my typical my typical process for, for working through a project. So that is going to do it for this week's show. As always, 
I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this. Uh, I'm extremely grateful for all of the support you've all provided over the years. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT051. And you'll, in the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video. Or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You'll find links to do both of these things in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.